Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. We have a great show today and maybe somebody that you have seen online. It's a real honor to talk to him and I'll introduce him here in just a second. But I want you to know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And it's an exciting point in our history where we have more students than we've ever had. We've had a 600% enrollment increase in the last five years. We have this new sense of like excitement as a global Methodist church is coming along and working with a course of study program at them. We have bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees. We would love for you to check us out at wbs.edu. Secondly, I'm thankful to my friend, Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner who helped support this podcast by helping me get kind of like the, some of the materials I need to make it happen. And he, he's a financial planner who helps people think about their retirement. A lot of people who are in ministry aren't thinking about their retirement and build somebody who can help you with that. So I encourage you to check him out at williamhroberts.com. Also, there's several things coming from my website, andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. I have a 45-minute teaching that's designed for preachers. It's a, it's a tool called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. Now, I know that sounds like a salesy type of thing in and itself, but the idea behind it is to be able to help preachers have tools to go deeper in their exegetical preparation with the aim of thinking along that way how you can creatively present to people God's called you to serve. So it's a 45-minute video teaching and then an eight-page PDF document that I think you could find helpful. So you can get that if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. I also have some courses there, one on the afterlife, one on the book of Jude. These are video courses you could use in a small group, a Sunday school class, your own personal study. So I'd love for you to check those things out. In addition to about 200 podcast interviews that we've had in the past, really thankful for folks who come alongside and who regularly follow the things coming from the More to Story podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, liking, whatever you have to do, making comments, that those are the type of things that helps us get to more people. And we're thankful for the opportunity to be able to serve you, people who are listening to this podcast. All right. I am so glad to welcome into the podcast Deacon I'm making sure I have that right. Deacon Calvin Robinson. Calvin, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me on. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. It's a real honor to speak with you. I've, I hear at Wesley Biblical Seminary, we all had this moment, I don't know, eight, 10 months ago, where all of a sudden there was this commotion down the hallway. And I'm like, what's going on? And, and everybody said, come here, come here, come here. You've got to see this. And so we actually got around our president's computer and you were on the screen, Calvin. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was, we saw your uh, Oxford Union debate. And um, you, I didn't properly introduce you, but you serve as a, in the Anglican Free Church in England. But but this was a unique moment as you stood up in a place where you had studied and pr defended the biblical view of marriage. And so we have from Wesley Biblical Seminary, we have become Calvin Robinson fans, if there's such a thing. Oh, over the last. <laughs> last several months. So thank thank you so much for the public way that you have stood up for the gospel and the truths of the church. Um, this has been an encouragement to us. And I just wanted to take some time to hear a little bit of your story. And I love to talk about um, that debate too, and what was behind some of that. So so tell us a little bit about yourself, Calvin. Like how did you, yeah, yeah, people who are watching us on YouTube can see that you have a clerical collar, you serve in an Anglican context, but I'd love to hear how you got there. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, but first of all, I, I like the comment you said about publicly standing up for the truth, because there is no way to privately stand up for the truth. Amen. We should all be publicly standing up for the truth. Otherwise, we're not standing up for the truth at all. So I think I that's it. important to put that out there. Um, it's always the question I, I dislike the most. <laughs> we're talking okay. about yourself. <laughs> I don't like talking about myself too much, but I'll give you a brief synopsis. Um, born and raised in the Midlands. So for a, a, an American audience, that's Sherwood Forest. That's okay. uh, Robin Hood country. Um, you know, we grew up around the, the major oak. I had my pretend bow and arrow and my uh, <laughs> my green felt hat. Loved Little it. John was right beside you. No, I didn't know. He, he died long ago, unfortunately. But okay. <laughs> I was definitely in that area. And um, nominally Christian, as everyone in England used to be. You know, everyone's everyone was Church of England at one point. Um which meant we went to church with school uh, at Easter, at Christmas, but not every Sunday. Um, but I always felt like I had a relationship with God. I always knew there okay. was a God. 
and I always felt that my prayers were answered. So my life has been a journey uh, from knowing God to discovering the persons of God. Um, mm. And I don't think I really got to know Jesus Christ in the person or the Holy Spirit until my early 20s. Um, and th that was, you know, obviously that's a long journey to go on. But yes. that, once I had discovered him, that was the start of the calling, the start of my vocation. The moment I became a Christian, I realized that everything in my life had to be centered around the Holy Eucharist. And mm. the moment we are closest with Christ. And so that's why I... Uh, I discerned holy orders and the church affirmed my calling and th that led me to where I am now. So this was in your 20s. So you must have had some type of career or something going on before mm. you had this converting moment. I don't know if it'd be like a, a conversion moment, but definitely like a move and growth and sanctification in that time. I, or how do you think of that moment? Uh, when yeah, what, was it, it a specific it, moment? Yeah, it was the mass. Yeah. Um, it just opened my eyes in a way that I could see what I hadn't been seeing before and I could hear what I wasn't hadn't heard before and just I encountered Christ through the the body and blood of him. Yes. And that's why I truly affirm that the, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian faith and that's why I centered my life around it and, tr and try to at least center my life around it. Uh, so there was definitely a moment, yes. And, you know, as an early Christian, I didn't understand the theology or the liturgy, but I, I knew that I, I met the person. Yeah. This is why John Wesley thought of it as a converting ordinance or converting grace. Like there is something that happens. Let's go with the uh, word sacrament. Yeah. Sacrament. There you go. Bro, I, I need <laughs> an I need outward a, invisible a, sign of an inward grace. Amen. Amen. Well, and, and um, I've actually made moves in the direction because of um, growing up in a tradition in the Salvation Army that uh, William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army in the 19th century was moving against what he saw as like dead institutionalism. And he just almost, uh, you might say that my grief threw the baby out with the bathwater. And so the Salvation Army is like the Quakers and non-practicing sacramental domination. And I just think like right. hearing your story and I'm, I'm fine to use the word sacrament in, in that moment, like when this happens, they you miss the opportunities for somebody like if you're not practicing the eucharist not having opportunities for those moments where god's grace has throughout church history come mm. and made himself so present we're missing that you're like missing this and so it is it's beautiful to hear that like as a moment that really leads somebody into a relationship with jesus because that's what it is yeah, and it's fascinating to me. And, you know, I, I love the Salvation Army. They do, do a lot of good charitable work, especially in England. Um, but I don't understand how any church can be without the sacrament. We're a church of the faith. So we're a church of the word and the sacrament together. That is what our right. faith is. It, uh, so it's, it's sad to me that so many people who think of themselves as Christians don't have access to the sacraments. Yeah, no, it is sad to me too. And this is part of, I mean, it wasn't the full reason why I left the Salvation Army, but it was part of it. It was that there, there was just missing this beautiful moment that people can use to access what God wants to do in their life. And part of it is like, this is this is where it gets, and you're, you're exactly right. And William Booth had a high respect. I think he would have thought of himself as a churchman in the kind of Church of England tradition, but he this is why he would say in those times, we're not a church. So we're not, have, we're not, observing the Lord's Supper. And so with that, it, he just thought we're, in a sense, almost more than a church because we're the ones who are really taking the gospel to the people. Well, I, Calvin, I'm curious. Apart since we're Apart from the about, part of the Bible where Christ says, take, eat in remembrance of me. Apart from that part, yeah. Oh, no, I believe me. You're not going to, you're not going to get any pushback from me, um, but I grew up pushing back against those arguments or, you know, this, the great commission, like it makes it hard for somebody to th say that we take the scripture as authoritative, as inerrant, if we're not really going to listen yeah. to uh, God's clear words through scripture oh, regarding yeah. the sacraments. Uh, what's your view? I mean, what's your sense of the Salvation Army in the UK? Now I have, I have, you know, friends who are there and I know, but do you have, do you have, you, you mentioned like good charitable work. I'm thankful for that, but do yeah. you see them as a church in uh, your context? I, no, I wouldn't really describe them as a church, but I, I like what they do in that um, they have, Places where people who can't afford furniture can go and get furniture for cheap, if not free. Uh, they yeah. do, I know they do tea and toast for very cheap, and which is it's like a community center, if anything. Uh, and of course, they play instruments at Christmas um, in the in the town square. 
So it reminds people of Christ, even if it's not a church itself. Yeah, yeah, it's helpful. And it's, it's nice to hear a lot, a lot of times it's like an internal system. When you get in those systems, it's easy just to only see it from that perspective. And so it's nice to hear how another British person might think about the Salvation Army, which is very, you know, has a lot of roots and systems that are based in British culture. Okay, let me j jump in here. So w with regard to the way that you have been led into ministry, did, what were you doing? Were, did you have a career before you yeah, yeah. responded to Holy Orders? What did you do? Um, so firstly, I was in technology after okay. university. So I, I did development uh, programming. Um, and then I moved from that into teaching. Now, this was this, this aligned with my um, calling. Okay. So what I didn't realize at the time was that teaching was the start of my vocation. And obviously teaching is part of the priestly ministry, but not the whole of it. Um, so it was great experience, but also it was a reminder that the work we do is, is well, it is in the Great Commission. You know, it, schools are a prime example of that in that we have such a utilitarian approach to education in the West at the moment. And I always thought, why are we sending people out with great exam results, but we're not sending out great people. In fact, mm. replace that word great with good. We should be sending out good people into the world. And we should be preparing them not just for work, but also for the heavenly kingdom to come. Um, I don't think we were doing that. Um, so so I shifted from technology into teaching. And whilst I, I shifted into teaching, I found Christ and realized that what we were doing in education wasn't the fullness of what we should be doing. And at some point I thought maybe I need to start a school that is truly Christian okay. because we don't really have many of those in England anymore, even though we started the whole thing off. Um, and that's what one thing led to another. And then I ended up going to seminary and now I'm in par parish ministry rather than school ministry, but still it's, you know, it was what led me here. Yeah. So my audience is probably unfamiliar with the ordination process in the Church of England. So can you walk us through that? And, and this is where you started to stand up. And I love your emphasis too. Like there is no uh, public representation of the truth unless it is public. Like, like you're, you're hiding behind it. But you started to do that. And so maybe walk us through what happened on your ordination journey and maybe even how that led you to where you're serving now. Okay. So the ordination process is a long long process of lots of discernment lots of prayer and lots of bureaucracy yes. um so you know you have conversations with your priest eventually they recommend you to the local deanery the local area and then you go to group sessions together from there you get recommended to an um a diocesan kind of director of ordinance a ddo or an area director of ordinance and they give you one-to-one -one sessions to kind of tease out of you your calling and they essentially are responsible for confirming or affirming that calling and then once that process has been completed you get sent off to psychiatric uh, evaluations and all kinds of stuff and then you get sent to placements to spend time in different christian settings with different types of ministry and then you have to explore different types of seminary or options. You don't have to go to a seminary these days, unfortunately. You can just do evening classes or whatever. Um, and then eventually you get sent to seminary and then you do your formation and your training. And at the end of that, you usually get sent out to a parish to be a curate or an assistant priest or a, you know, a deacon. And you spend three years usually as an assistant curate uh, one year as a deacon throughout that three-year process. And then at the end of that, you get sent off to your own parish to become your own parish priest. So now I entered that process with the Church of England. I got to the end of seminary. I completed my course in seminary. So I completed my training and my formation. And I was supposed to be sent to a parish as an assistant curate, as a, as a deacon. Right. And um, that's when I came in, into uh, trouble with the Church of England in that they were promoting wokeness that I couldn't abide by. And yeah. we had a difference of opinion on on these things. Um, not not nothing theological, entirely entirely uh, political and and uh, worldly, really. But uh, it very quickly became clear that a there wasn't a place for someone like me, someone who's conservative in politics and theology, uh, and b that actually even if there was, I don't know if I'd be comfortable in that place because it was going. The Church of England was becoming well apostate, which it has with this whole. You know, my issue was mostly around race at the time and how the church was teaching that we are institutionally racist, which I vehemently disagreed with because I said that individuals sin and passing sin over to the corporate body kind of 
removes it from the individual and that's problematic for a whole host of reasons but the church of england has entered apostasy through this same-sex blessing situation that we're seeing play out before our eyes so i was liberated from the church of england actually by leaving. okay now it's interesting in that period i remember i've heard you tell a story about interacting with the bishop of london and mm. and you had challenges just even with the recognizing her as the Bishop of London in general, like a, somebody who'd be in superiority or director or director of you, whatever you would say. But um, t tell me about like what happened in that meeting, like because there's this definite claim that it, the church is racist. The Church of England is racist. Isn't this what the Bishop of London said to you? In a yeah, in a yeah. So you're right. I don't recognize Sarah Mullally as the Bishop of London because there is no Bishop of London because women cannot be pre become priests or bishops. It's uh, it's not in the Bible. However, um, I was going by the bishop. I was going through the bishop of Fulham, who is what they call a flying bishop, because the Church okay. of England has provisions for traditionalists, for people who are Catholic in their faith, um, who cannot, in good conscience, um, receive orders from a woman. Um, so I was going through him, but his, the flying bishops don't really have any jurisdiction. So okay. his boss was the bishop of London. So I met with her, and I mean, this is an old story now, but essentially she just said. Calvin, I can tell you that, that the Church of England is institutionally racist. And I said, I disagree with that. And I don't like when I hear the Archbishop of Canterbury proclaiming that at Synod with no evidence to back it up, just, just we are racist. It paints the whole church as racist. It paints all of us as racist. And I think that's wrong. I think there are individuals who are racist. Those individuals need to be held to account. And, you know, she turned around and said to me, no, I can tell you as a white woman, the church is racist. And I thought wow. at that point, we're coming from different directions and... I don't see how there's a common ground in this. Yeah, it, it, almost like ontologically, it's challenging. You, there's a challenge with saying the church is racist. And what's the, what's the challenge with that statement? Well, of course, if if we're talking about the church, big C, we're talking about Christ's body on earth, and therefore right. we're calling Christ racist, essentially. But I don't, I don't think that, being charitable, I don't think that's what she was trying to say. Okay, okay, yeah. She's blaming the infrastructure. She's blaming the institution. But that's, it doesn't work because we teach that we are all fallen individuals. And of course, institutions are made up of fallen individuals and those fallen individual, individuals will sin. But when we sin, we have to repent. And when we repent, we, are, we receive absolution and we are forgiven. Our Lord forgives us, but we can't be forgiven if we don't even, if we show no contrition, if we don't repent. He teaches us to repent. So how are we going to repent if we don't recognize our sin? If we say, well, actually, it's not my sin. It's the corporate body's sin. It's the church's sin. The church is what's racist, not me. That's that's the problem. Yes. So so this is the issue for you was that it's the individualist type of approach. Like you can't say that you can you can point to the corporate reality, but it's the individual piece that you're not guilty of. Like you can't right. say like, oh, how can I move forward with this? Um, what's what do you suppose they they see as an act? Is it kind of like an implicit systemic racism that they feel like we're all guilty of like we're all racist all the time I and mean, what's well happening? this is the thing you know there's nothing to back it up so when the archbishop of canterbury stands up there at general synod at the governing body of the church of england and says i apologize because the church is institutionally racist with no data to back that up what they're saying is look, we we want to be seen as good people by the world we want to be seen as nice by the world and we're going to play by the world's games and play by the world's language and that's what they're doing. They're going along with critical race theory. You know, this is all as a result of Black Lives Matter. And it's all worldly matters that they're focused on rather than the, the Catholic area of social justice that we learn from the scriptures of addressing these issues of, of race from a Christian perspective and teaching instead of teaching, you know, all of this stuff is wrapped up in critical race theory, which teaches about whiteness being a problem and white people are inherently oppressive and and well racist and it's nothing that you can change about yourself it's just the way you're born and again that's not the christian faith the christian faith is that yes we're born sinners but we can well through through god's grace we can be helped of that and christ died for our sins uh, and offers us well he redeems us and offers us eternal salvation that's the message it's not that you are stuck in sin it's that actually we are free from sin if we, Amen, if we live yeah. a life in christ and it's the church is going backwards by by the, well the church hierarchy is going backwards by teaching uh, the opposite. Yeah, and it's interesting. Of course, 
you might be an unsuspecting person uh, to say this, right? I imagine that as you've been in situations as a black man, I don't know how you want to, what, how you identify yourself exactly. Um, what, what's the best way for me to say that for you? Well, you- I mean, I, I'm so I'm mixed race. So I'm half black okay. and half white. But this is this is part of the problem as well. So the, the Archbishop of Canterbury is white, middle class or upper class, whatever. So is the Archbishop of York. So is the Bishop of London, three most powerful, influential people in the Church of England. Now, if they are saying the Church of England is racist, surely they should all step down and replace themselves with an ethnic minority person. <laughs> I don't sure. no, I don't believe in affirmative action in that sense. However, if they were going to replace themselves with someone from Afri- from the African continent or something, I probably would get behind it because they'd be much more orthodox right. in their faith. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how does this work then for you? Well, look, okay, I, I won't get back to where you're serving now. But bef- before we get to that, th- this is, do you think, one of the challenges of critical race theory and its emergence in the church is the sin of partiality? Do you feel like yeah. that's what we're dealing with? I mean, yeah. what else is, is behind? It's like finding our identities in external markers beyond who we are in Christ. And, yeah. there, and, and this is related, of course, not just to critical race theory, but critical theories as a whole. So it's no surprise then that we have similar things said related to LGBTQ concerns and the like. Yeah. Uh, tra- so is that what it is? Is this partiality? It, critical theories are the work of the enemy. Okay. You, 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 put your, you put your finger on it there, Andy. We are, our identity is in Christ, right? We are members of his body. We received we received that grace through our baptism. We become members of His body, and so our identity is rooted in Him. Now, the enemy doesn't like that. The enemy wants to disrupt our connection to our Lord, and to do that, he twists things around and says, "Actually, you know, your identity isn't in Christ. Your identity is in you." And it mm. essentially goes all the way back to Genesis in that you can be your own God. You don't need God. You can be your, your, your own God too. And that's what we're doing when we're saying, actually, no, my, I'm, I'm looking for my inner self, my true self. That's I'm on the search for me. Well, we should be on a search for God. And and that's that's the greatest self-exploration for the, for the inner connection to Christ. And so to separate us from Christ, he says, focus on your immutable characteristics, focus on your skin color, focus on your sexuality, focus on your gender, the things about yourself that you can't change. And and really dig down in them. They are the things that make you you. When the Christians should be saying, no, they're not. They're unimportant. They're irrelevant, actually. What makes you you is, is that you're made in the image of God and that Christ loves you and died for you and offers you eternal salvation if you embrace him, repent of your sins and embrace him. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that I'm studying, doing a PhD at the University of Manchester. Um, I go over for a couple of weeks in summer and I have some colleagues who come during the same period during a residential time. And this person might see this, but they did this very publicly. So I think it makes sense. Um, he described to me how he's moved away from the the faith tradition that he was raised in, maybe it's very similar to mine. And then, um, and then embraced all of the things that we've talked about like that we you know just for shorthand could say various woke ideologies mm-hmm. okay so if, if that's the case then the next day i saw that he had a t-shirt on and that this t-shirt had a silhouette and i didn't quite know what it was and and i asked him about it and it was a, his own silhouette and what he what he had done on that and, and below it had his last name mm-hmm. ology and so it oh, said, like, oh. mine, Miller, it'd be like Miller-ology. And I said, tell me about your shirt. And he said, well, this is just my, you know, as I've kind of grown theologically, he says, I've this is my new approach. This is my, the way I look at the world. And I thought, look, man, do you see what you replaced yourself with? Like, what, what you, who you replaced? You took off Theos, you took off God, and you put yourself in there, and now you're wearing a picture of yourself. To describe wow. your so I mean this ends up being something that ends up being so self-focused, mm. where we then are trying to create God in our own image, and I think that that's a part of what is at the heart of some of these challenges, of this woke perspective is it's like my thoughts, my ideas become total reality. A hundred percent. That is so sad to hear, but this is it. This is what the woke movement is. We, you know, we call it neo-Marxism. We call it communism. It doesn't really matter. What it is is the enemy trying to disrupt our connection with our Lord, and to do to launch an attack on our heavenly Lord. He uses us as pawns, 
And of course, we can never become gods. We, we are not the same substance with the Father, but we are convinced that we can become gods in our own earthly ways, whether that's in monetary value or social value, it doesn't matter. This idea of having your own name as an ology is just, is, oh, it's, it, I, I'm going to pray for that dude. Yes. Well, and, and as we're like kind of like seeing this reliance of on the self as the center, I think mm. that that's where we get uh, problems. Um, I'm interested, like, so you get in this difficult situation where your ordination basically is blocked. So how did you, how'd you come out? I mean, you're ordained now. I introduced you as deacon. So tell a lot of people don't understand, particularly in an American evangelical context, um, we we in actually what's emerging now is ACNA. A lot of us have yeah. people who have moved to ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. But tell us about your your process and how God provided for you in the midst of this hard time. Okay, so yeah, that's a good way of putting it. God always <laughs> provides. Um, so I thought this was it. Okay, so maybe I'm not going to be ordained. Maybe I'm not going to enter ministry, even though I still felt called to it. And the the church had confirmed my calling. I was like, well, what does this mean? And bishops from the ACNA reached out, actually, from the ACNA and the okay. REC reached out and said, do you know, you can still remain Anglican outside of the Church of England, something that I hadn't actually considered, I didn't realize properly. Um, and they taught me about GAFCON, this global Anglican Futures Conference meet, not necessarily a meeting, but more of a movement. And uh, there is a small presence of it in the UK, but of course, the UK has an established church a state church which has a monopoly on christianity in in this country so it's not quite the same uh, setup as what we see in america but i did look at what's going on in america and i thought this is great so we've got the acna saying to to the episcopal church what you guys are doing is wrong you're entering apostasy you cannot you know ask god to bless sin you cannot consecrate practicing homosexual men as bishops and all of this and i thought okay so the acna is is, is strong they are reforging uh, or reforming Anglicanism in America, great. Um, and the REC was the was one of the founding uh, provinces of the ACNA. And the REC is fantastic too. You know, formerly um, a big R reformed, now a small R or RE dash formed. I think they would go by now uh, they, because they've found their Catholic roots, which is great to see. Um, some of my uh, best Anglo Catholic friends are in the REC, so I'm, I'm very glad to see what they're doing but within the acna of course you've got the diocese of fort worth and you've got uh san wahin as well doing great work but i thought this is what they, they this is what can be done so maybe we need a presence of anglicanism in england and we need to remind people that anglicanism although it might be synonymous with the church of england in our lexicon it's not factually the same you know right. anglicanism started in the church of england of course but that doesn't mean it has a monopoly over anglicanism so i joined the free church of england which is um, the UK's version of the Reformed Episcopal Church. So the full name is the Free Church of England, otherwise called the Reformed Episcopal Church of the United Kingdom and Ireland, I think. Um, not as quite as far along as the REC in the US, so still quite big R Reformed in, in some ways, which is, which is problematic, but at least they're orthodox in, in terms of sexuality, race, gender, and all of the modern issues that the, the Church of England has, has uh, fallen on. So they they were a big uh, they're a lifeboat to me really and uh, mm -hmm. offered me diaconal ministry. Hmm. So it, how many churches are in that tradition in the um, in England? Like are oh, there many places? Small. Yeah. No, no, there's like twenty. Okay. Um, wow. So we have we have a Gafcon GBE Great Britain and Europe, and as part of that we've got Ace and Amy. So Ace is basically the ACNA in the UK. Amy is like snake belly low evangelical. And then we've got uh, the Free Church of England is a GAFCON as associate as well. And that's uh, more prayer book uh, worship. So so vested in prayer book. Um, that's the differentiation between those three. But uh, all, between all three of them, they're very small. There's, there's probably less than 100 um, parishes altogether. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done there. So, so within GAFCON and all of these different movements within Anglicanism, do forgive my ignorance here do mm. they still look at within the anglican commune are they still under the right. archbishop of canterbury like, that's a good question so not under canterbury no and i went to gafcon uh the latest one this year so there's a, there's a conference every five years and it happened to be this year and i went out to rwanda um to kigali and met with the people there and the the, the primates there represented 85% of Anglicans all around the world. So the, the vast majority of the Anglican communion is part of GAFCON and the Global South, and, the, and they're very orthodox in their faith. 
And what they were saying is that Canterbury needs to repent. Canterbury needs to uh, come back into the Orthodox Anglican faith. And until they do, we no longer recognize as the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury as the first among equals. So the Anglican communion now isn't going to form a new communion. It's essentially okay. excommunicating uh, okay. the Archbishop of Canterbury until the Ch Church of England repents. And they're going to look in the next five years, in the lead up to the next conference, they're going to look for a mechanism to install their own first among equals. Okay, interesting. interesting. So that, that person wouldn't be called the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? But it'd be... Uh, just some sort of first among equals. Now, yeah. uh, Calvin, like some people might say, people who have uh, uh, maybe share your theology and political perspective, who are still in the Church of England, and maybe and this is the, the argument too with a, a host of denominations. As people have moved moved away, yeah, that's right. Should we shouldn't we just agree to disagree? Yeah, well. <laughs> We can't agree to disagree in terms of the truth. There is one objective truth. His name is Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, either we believe in the scriptures as revealed to us, or we don't. Like, mm -hmm. Either we believe in the Christian faith, um, as has been handed down to us through gen the generations, or we don't. Right? I just don't see how we can pick and choose which bits we believe and say, well, actually now in this context, in this time and place, we need to kind of get with the times and like, no, like either we are with the world or we're with Christ. We can't right. be with both. So yeah, I struggle I, with I'm that. With you. you know, people in the church of England, I've got many good friends, uh, you know, laity and clergy in the church of England who are doing good work and are faithful. And I struggle with the idea that they're, they're able to do that within a, a system that has become apostate. Um, I, I don't know if it's possible to reform the Church of England at this point because the hierarchy is captured. 99% of the bishops are liberals. And, you know, I think you can either be a liberal or you can be a Christian. Mm, wow. The two things don't go to this. Two different religions, essentially. Yeah. Is What, what is it that makes it apostate? Um, is it because the church hasn't officially, the Church of England hasn't changed its articulation of what marriage is, but yet at the same time they're blessing same-sex unions. So is it is it it's not just a written doctrine, but is it the practice that makes it apostate? Absolutely. And they will they will continue to profess that we have not changed our doctrine, but it, the, there's the letter of the law, there's the spirit of the law, right? And it's very disingenuous to say we haven't changed the letter, but we're changing the spirit. And that's what mm -hmm. they're trying to do. They're trying to work ways around the law. And as we that's pharisaical, essentially. But what they're doing is wrong. And they, you cannot ask God to bless what he has called abhorrent. It's just ridiculous. So to say we are going to, uh, you know, first of all, they said they wanted to blame uh, to bless same-sex marriages or same-sex unions. And then they said, actually, no, we'll bless individuals within the union. And it's like, that's when you start playing tricky games. But now even they've come out and said, look, we will we'll bless same-sex unions, some of which will be sexual in nature. So they've come out with it explicitly saying they're going to ask God to bless sodomy because it's not them who does the blessing. It's God who does the blessing. Uh, so it's, it's not possible. And so that's the main reason, yes. But the Church of England has been going this way for a long, long time, you know, from the embracing of contraception, no-fault divorce, remarriage of people who are divorced with a living partner, um, uh, all of these things, the, the ordination of women, all of these things were part of the same slippery slope. Yes. Uh, now, it's interesting to me. I'm so thankful that you have found this avenue of service. It, in could you just tell me a little bit about like the joy that it is to be able to function in your calling in a, in a movement that is aligned with scripture and tradition? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for that. Um, I've just spent some time in the States. Actually, I always come back with that rejuvenated. It's re-energizing spending time with, with, with Orthodox Anglicans and well, not just Anglicans, but just Orthodox Christians in general mm -hmm. and reminding each other what it is, what it can be like. And, I think all things are relative. So the situation in England is quite dire. So it's nice to go to the States and get a reminder of how it could be. But then I went to Scandinavia recently, where it's even worse than the United Kingdom because the, the, it's entirely secular. There is no God in there. You know, they don't have a state church or anything like that. So that reminded me that actually it's not as bad in England as it could <laughs> be. Uh, but, but the joy is that I, I was liberated. You know, 
God permitted the the situation that went on in the Church of England so that I would be freed from the Church of England and able to actually get on with my ministry. I mean, mm-hmm. both my public ministry and my parish ministry, I'm able to just proclaim the gospel, right? I'm able to just preach the truth. And I wouldn't have been able to do that in the, in the Church of England. I would have had to go to diversity, inclusion and equality meetings and training events. And I would have been told off every time I said something. You know, I, I've got so many friends who have been told off by their bishops for saying things that are in the Bible. And the, the, and the bishop would be like, yeah, I know it's the Christian teaching, but it's controversial. It's like, yes, that's why we need to say even more. Like, yes. if, if the truth is controversial, it needs to be heard all the more because it means people are outside of the church are falling away from the truth. And our job as the church is to bring the truth to the people. It's it's also self-explanatory. It's, it's frustrating. But yes, the joy is in the fact that I can get on with my ministry. Thank God for that. Amen. And it's like, I imagine that if I was able to join you this Sunday and attend worship with you, I might not hear, and maybe I would, I mean, as, as scripture leads to it, um, if that's a passage that you're, you're preaching from, but I imagine I wouldn't hear uh, railing against uh, just these political issues or issues within the life of the church. There's so much more to say. I mean, let, let's give it. So what are you preaching on this Sunday? That is a good question. And that is, that's a good point indeed, because this is it. I can tell you, I can grab my prayer book and tell you exactly what I'm preaching on because I don't, you know, when I'm at church, I'm not preaching on whatever the latest pronouncement from the C of E is on things like blessings or whatever silly um, policy is being thought up in the, by the conservative government. I'm preaching on what it says right here. So we've just done twentieth. So we're the gospel of the gospel according to Saint John, uh, four forty six to end. So this is about the nobleman whose son was sick in Capernaum. And he heard about Jesus uh, coming out to Judea. So it's about the healing of the of the son. That's what I'll be preaching on because that's what's in the lectionary for this week. I preach on the gospel. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So I, I love I love giving you that opportunity because I know you be, you're a public figure um, in England and you have a TV show. People people come to know you, but I I know that your heart is behind that that's behind all of this the reason you're willing to speak out on these issues is that's a loving way you want to will the good for the people who are within your parish but the people who are under your influence but it comes together with the reality of proclaiming the gospel every sunday oh, so man. i love that all right i want to talk about the oxford union piece and the way that this goes is a very famous public hundreds of years old kind of gathering um what led up to this like and, and if you Friends, let me just stop here for a second. If you haven't seen this, if you just YouTube, Google Calvin Robinson, likely this will be the first thing that comes up and you need to watch it. You need to watch it. So I just encourage you, maybe don't stop what you're doing right now, but check this out. So, but assuming that some of my audience has listened to this, tell us, Calvin, what led you to this point? Like what's kind of the backstory behind the Oxford Union debate for you? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, over 5 million people have seen it now. So the, the chances are, if you're Christian in the West, you've seen it. Right. It's a, a, astonishing to me. Uh, but what what led up to it? Um, I got invited to speak at the Oxford Union, and I, I, I speak at a lot of universities. I'd previously spoken at the Cambridge Union. Um, but it was on a debate which was obviously controversial. Um, this house proposes that same-sex marriage in the church is a good thing or something along those lines. And I was asked to speak on the opposing side. I thought, okay, this is going to be a challenging one. Um, So I tried to find out who would be debating. And they didn't seem too sure. It took them a while to get back to me. Eventually they said, uh, Dr. Ian Paul would be on your side. I thought, okay, that's good. He's he's a good theologian, um, evangelical. Uh, sticks to the word for the most part. He's wet on women's ordinations, unfortunately, but he's he's a good man. Other than that, um, and I, I'm I glad to hear you say that because that's where you and I would fall too. So I'm glad you say, well, generally, generally good. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. Keep going, it, keep is going. The, it is the slippery slope that leads to all the rest of liberalism, and people that accept that accept all the rest eventually. So it's it's a great shame. However, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry so, to interrupt. No, no, it's I, fine. But I, I I didn't get the rest of my team, so it was looked like they were okay. struggling. And uh, I asked my principal from St. Stephen's House if he'd be up for it, but he was busy. And I couldn't think of anyone else who'd be competent or capable enough. So I thought, I have to do it. Um, otherwise, it's, this sound's just not going to get heard. And then I turned up and there were three bishops on the proposing side. I thought, okay, this is this is not good. We've got three bishops from the established church arguing against doctrine of the church. This right. is baffling. 
and the the chairman of the society, chairman of the union, said we approached every single Roman Catholic bishop in the country. They all declined to come on the opposing side. Thought, okay, that's not good either. So yeah. the Church of England is letting us down, but the Roman Catholic Church is letting us down too. So it, it turned up to it turned out just being so that you have four people on each side. So there were three bishops and a student on the proposing side, and then on my side. It was me, Dr. Ian Paul, and then we had two students, but this, they were awful because they started their entire speech with, well, we don't believe this, but, you know, they had to put that caveat oh in there to kind of, we're not with them, you know, don't, if you're the yeah. woke mob, don't come for us too. It was but this just, is what I would say if I believed this. Oh, or, despicable. Yeah. But they didn't even. It, I didn't see that argument, part of it. Argument was poor, not worth watching. Um, Dr. Ian Paul was worth watching, but the other two were just not worth watching at all. Um, so it was just two against six, essentially. Wow. And that's not even including the floor speeches that people got up to make. Not one person got up to kind of support. Well, actually, there might have been one, but there weren't many people that got up to support uh, the opposing side. They were all standing up to support the proposing side uh, of of blessing sodomy. Mm. Okay, this is a wild moment to me. I mean, this is not an average thing to do. Like to go and stand in place where you studied to a very uh, important public gathering and what it I, I know I know it might just seem like so natural to you but this is a wild thing Calvin you did I mean this is a, a very brave hard I mean you're probably going to take more heat for this than you have blessings of somebody like me from Mississippi coming along saying way to go good job Calvin. I mean this is this is a very hard thing to do why what is it in you that led you to go ahead and stand up for this, even when you couldn't even get people to come alongside of you except for one person. Because it wasn't about me. It was about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are supposed to be on his side. Like people often say, the, the Lord's on our side. It's like, no, the Lord's not on our side. We have to be on his side. That's mm. the difference. And so we have to stand up for his word and we have to proclaim his word. That's what we're called to do. And I thought, if no one else is going to do it, I've got to do it. And I, I did feel inferior. I, I felt it wasn't my place. You know, I was very recently ordained a deacon so i'm a low b in terms of my my stance in the church to go up against three bishops it didn't feel right um and it was it was a very stressful experience it's the most stressful speaking experience i've ever had um and of course the room at the time was very hostile and not at all open to freedom of speech or freedom of debate actually for for a union centered on mm. debate it was quite surprising but uh it just had to be done and i'm i'm not brave and i'm not strong um I get my strength and my bravery from the Lord. I ask him to make me his vessel. And that's what I think he did at that time. Mm. How do you feel like you did? How, how did in, in that moment? <laughs> like, yeah. No, at the moment, I didn't feel like I did well at all. And, you know, I've, I've said this on previous interviews, but I was probably quite depressed afterwards. I took a few days off and uh, okay. kept myself to myself. I thought I'd let this, the, the debate down, the team down, but I thought I'd let God down. And that was... Mm. That was difficult for me, actually. Um, you know, I went back to, so I, I was in Oxford, so I stayed at my former college that night and uh, I went to breakfast in the morning and I remember my print, my former principal asking me, how'd you do? I was like, yeah, don't watch it. It wasn't very good. Um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it was it was tough. Yeah. And we obviously we lost the debate massively. There were a few people afterwards who came up quietly to say, yeah, I, I agree with you, but I wasn't going to say anything in front of these people. So, right. Well, thank you, but it would have been yeah, helpful right. if you had. And then two months later, it gets put on the internet and it just goes crazy. And that taught me a few lessons, actually. One of them was humility because it wasn't my place to feel down about how I'd done because it wasn't my place to see the results. I was there to plant seeds on his behalf it's not our place to see that those seeds bear fruit so whilst i'd been there thinking okay no one's heard what i had to say people had heard but it, mm -hmm. the audience wasn't the audience in the room at the time right and those with ears to hear around five like i say over five million people now around the world have heard what i had to say at the time and i'm very blessed to know that those people have seen it and to have so many people getting in touch and it's it's honestly it touches my heart every time with wonderful uh support for hearing the word publicly proclaimed and that's a great blessing that god has permitted me to to receive that that gift but it's not granted you know it's not a given and that's that's been a lesson that i've taken from this that one of the reasons we're to speak the truth at all times is because we never know who's going to hear it and we're mm -hmm. not always going to know 
it's it's that faithfulness to in obedience in that moment, even if Calvin, even if it hadn't um, resulted in an opportunity for you to, for you and I to be in this conversation, I imagine wouldn't be, I wouldn't be in this conversation with you had that not happened and other opportunities for public ministry for you, even if none of that had happened, it would have been the right thing to do. Absolutely. Now what's happened for you since then? Do you have, um, you've mentioned like you have your parish ministry and your public ministry. What is that public ministry that you have. I, I know that there's some things happening on TV and you might be get called on, on a regular basis to represent a conservative opinion, but tell us about some of the things you're doing. Right. So until very recently, I had my own TV show on a channel called GB News. Uh, it was called Calvin's Command Sense Crusade. So for the last year and a half, I've been talking about uh, current events from a faith perspective and really trying to put Christianity back in the public square. And that, that's been successful. Um, and I get invited onto other shows on other channels and and try to do the same. But it was great to be able to have a platform uh, centered on Christ, mm. uh, which used to be what we did in this country. And, and that's not happening anymore, uh, is there? No, no. I, I've been fired from that channel. Um, okay. this, Sorry, this I missed that news. Recent controversy of of, <laughs> of last week or whatever, but uh, or week before. But yeah, that was uh, an issue of free speech. Essentially, um, there's a whole backstory to it that I don't really want to go into. It's, okay, that's fine, no problem. Just, just to sum it, just to sum it up, real briefly, one one chap said something he shouldn't have said on air. He got suspended. The person whose show he was on got suspended, and I said, "Look, I don't agree with what was said. However, we can't call ourselves the home of free speech and cancel two presenters for uh, over this. It's ridiculous. There's a lot of hysteria, and then I got suspended too, and, and eventually fired." Um, so it, it, I was trying to stand up for free speech and also stand up for my friends and try to show some loyalty. But I don't regret it at all because I think we need more of that in the public square too. We need people standing up for what's right, even when it costs them their job. Because quite often people say, oh, I, yeah, I, I agree with you, but you know, I can't say anything because of my job. It's like, well, then you don't truly believe it, do you? Right. We have to develop a, a theology of getting fired. <laughs> well, it's just a fear of the Lord more than our fear of the world. Yes, amen. That's what it comes down to. And I think like if we believe that there is a new heavens and a new earth on its way, you know, if Jesus is going to return and put everything right, and that's ultimate reality found in our triune God, um, yeah. I want to be there. <laughs> I want to be, I want to be with that truth. I want to connect myself to that truth more than I do with what is coming in the moment. And that's why I wanted to highlight you. And I so appreciate the ministry God's called you to take on. I mean, this is, um, who knows? I mean, who knows all the things that were a part of your development that led you to this point. I just so appreciate Calvin, the way you're standing up for the truth. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I, I, the name of my podcast is more to the story. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, I like to hear more than just like what we can pick up on YouTube. So, so thankful for your time with this to hear more of this story of your personal story. There's also a theological reason behind it. that I think of there's more than just getting saved. There's also the process of sanctifying grace in our life and the opportunity to know that there's a, a moments for us to continue to seek the way that God wants to do more in our lives. But I also see it kind of in a kind of a more, uh, funny sort of way every now and then is there more to the story of Calvin that's normally told? Like, is there something, is there a hobby that you have that you've done a lot of podcast interviews, a lot of TV interviews? Is there <laughs> something about you that people generally don't know that you could share with us? I tend to put myself out there quite a bit. So most, most of the stuff about me is known. Um, I used to do martial arts. Back okay. in the day. I, have, I have a black belt and an instructor's license in Taekwondo. So once I uh, eventually plant a, a church i'd love to set up a um taekwondo club in the church and bring that into it as a as a way of encouraging masculinity i think i think we have a real um lack of masculinity in our culture right now we need more masculine christians we need more men to be men and to be chivalrous and gentlemen and to be providers and protectors and to restore the patriarchy mm. Wow. A lot of people resist the idea of restoring the patriarchy, but I love, like, so what would that mean? What would, what would uh, a society look like where the patriarchy is restored? Well, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is that women are the fairer sex, generally speaking. So who, who best to look out of, to look out for women than men, because we are the ones protecting women from other men. Uh, the only pe people who can challenge men are men, right? So there's that old fashioned 
I'm, and I appreciate that it's an old-fashioned mentality, but it's one that sh- comes from a place of nobility. It comes from a place of actually wanting the best. It's a, it's a willing the good of the other, right? It's, it's men should be should be looking out for women because we love women. And just in the same way that women look out for men in different ways, you know, women are more emotionally intelligent than men. So they provide a different and more nurturing than men. And women have lots of uh, benefits that men do not have. So I'm not trying to paint men as superior to women, just right, men right. are physically stronger than women. Right. And, and that's something that our society... Uh, uh, understood until recently but also it's wider than that it's not about us none of this is about us you know the wokeness stuff we talked about earlier wasn't really about us it's about disconnecting us from our god Uh, it's the enemy attacking god all of it is and this is exactly the same thing with the patriarchy god the father is the ultimate patriarch he asks us to call him abba right he he provides and protects for us he looks after us as any good father does he provides boundaries for us to live within and when we breach those boundaries, when we break his laws, he forgives us and loves us unconditionally. He is the ultimate father. He is the ultimate patriarch. And that is why the woke liberals on behalf of the enemy want to destroy the patriarch because they want to destroy God. Of course, they can never win that battle and God has already won. But the enemy in going down, kicking and screaming wants to disrupt our Lord as much as he can. So we, on on our Lord's behalf, have to restore the patriarchy. Mm, beautiful. Uh, no, what, what's happening is interesting. Um, you said your is it your desire? Do you feel called to plant a church? Is that your hope? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, from so w- where I am in my ministry, there is not really a church that I could go into, whether that's in London or well, pretty much anywhere in the in the United Kingdom. If I if I'm just even stay here, who knows? Um, it, there's I don't think it's coincidence that I've been sacked from my public ministry or sacked from my TV job. Uh, you know days before i get ordained to the priesthood mm. i don't i don't believe in coincidences so right. my calling is just clearly changing so i'm just in a, prim, in a period of discernment now trying to look for the door that god's opening to me so that i can walk through that and do the best that i can for him um i think we have to model our lives on christ in his kenosis and try to empty ourselves of our will and try to be filled with god's will it's the most difficult thing in the world but that's what we're supposed to be trying to do so um eventually i would love to plant a church i don't know if that's what i'm called to again i'm i'll see but uh check yeah. back in with me in a few months and that sounds good <laughs> well wherever it is there might be taekwondo lessons happening absolutely and that's, that, that, I, I like the idea of that Make calvin men, thank men you again. so much for your time it's really a delight i hope we get to meet sometime and shake hands and uh have a cup of coffee but it's a real privilege to talk to you and just hear my encouragement i just appreciate the way that you're taking the gospel seriously and standing up for it in your culture. And we applaud you here from Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. God bless you.